Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is Monday morning, February the 14th. And my Monday mornings are now started with a discussion with Jimmy Saxon in Dubai as we continue working our way through the great book of Charles Adams, Good and Evil. And today we have reached lesson 13, which I will read into the podcast and we will undoubtedly read it again. But here we go. A wise ruler does not change an effective tax system. Destroy the social order if you must, like Cortez in Mexico, but never destroy a tax system that works well. Never destroy a tax system that works well. Well, how are you today, Jimmy? I am fantastic. How about yourself? Well, it's, it, it always uh, gets the week off to a great start with these discussions. So things are looking good. Well, you know, Jimmy, this is loaded with all kinds of interesting language, adjectives, a wise, a wise ruler. Do, do you know any of them? I mean, I think the ruler of Dubai is pretty wise. I mean, he seems to be building something. I think the rulers here in the UAE are pretty wise, but beyond that, it does not seem like there is a, that there is a plethora of wise rulers in the world. Let me ask you this question. Do you, do you think that democracy produces wise rulers? No. No. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Well, and also I'll, I'll, I'll add something to this because I was actually thinking about this over the weekend. Um, when it comes to democracies. And, you know, I remember when, you know, I'll use the, the Kennedys as an example, right? I mean, and I'm not necessarily speaking as to their policies. I'm just saying that, you know, by and large, it's a very educated family, a wealthy family uh, that went into politics, right? Um, but they're, they're educated, they're kind of a dynasty. And I think if you look back, and I'm talking about the United States because I think it's a democracy that I know the best. I think the level of education and depth of philosophical knowledge and knowledge of government used to be much higher in previous generations with the people that were in government. I mean, if you look back at people who were congressmen and so and senators and stuff like that, 50, 60 years ago, I mean, a lot of these were successful business people that, you know, sort of made it to a certain point in life and then decided to go into government. But now they don't do that anymore, right? Now, I mean, now the special interests just buy the cheapest schmuck they can to get into office that they can pull the purse strings. And these are generally the people that make their way up the food chain and eventually become the leaders of democracies. So it's not like we're it's not like we're starting with the creme de la creme in the government and then they're working their way up and eventually becoming a leader, right? We're, we're, what we're really working with is the cheapest person that you can lobby behind and buy a seat and then continue to buy their, their way up, right? I mean, they're talking bobbleheads for the most part. Yeah, I do think that as I look back over my lifetime, that there has been a continual erosion 
in the quality of people who have found their ways into these positions. Yeah. And there's absolutely no question about that. Uh, I think that, you know, leaving aside their previous achievements or lack thereof, I think that what we see today is a notable lack of any kind of vision at all. Yeah. But anyway, so we've got a bit of a wise ruler deficit. Uh, That's a good way to put it. So yeah, a wise, a wise ruler deficit, <laughs> which is more concerning than the national deficit on a lot of ways. In, in many ways, it certainly is. Okay, so they do not change an effective tax system. Effective. Here we have all these adjectives today, right? <laughs> so let's talk about what do we think are the the absolute essentials for an, attack, an effective tax system? What do you think? You know, the one that comes to mind first and foremost, and I think that this to me was something that I never really thought about until I read this book and discussed it further with you, which I think that the first thing that you need to even have a hope of an effective tax system is taxpayer consent, right? It has to be they have to be taxed by consent, essentially agree to the tax, right? Um, and, and not forced into it. I, th I think that's the first component. Well, you know, that, that's kind of interesting because if we look at the tax systems and, well, clearly the United States and say Canada, these are pretty oppressive, coercive systems, aren't they? I mean, you know, they presume, they almost presume that everybody wakes up every morning and thinks about how to not comply with the tax laws, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that, I think that it's, it's a, a constant, I think it's a constant on everybody's mind, right? Don't, don't break the tax law. How do I comply with the tax law? I mean, it's an, it's, it's an ever-present thought hanging over your head. You know, you say how to comply with the tax laws. I think the consent is important, but I really think, I mean, after looking at the last decade of the whole problem, the U.S. thing, is that I think an effective tax system kind of requires that people can comply with it. Don't you think? Certainly. And, 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 comply, and not just that, that they can comply with it, but they, they can comply with it easily, right? Like you shouldn't, I mean, in my opinion, you shouldn't need a tax preparer to pay your tax, right? I mean, it should be a fairly easy thing to do. You know, on that note, I think you might find this interesting, but I'd love your comment. So, as you know, there's a major cultural event every February in the United States called the Super Bowl. And uh, I, I don't know, you, you probably could have seen it in Dubai if you'd wanted to. But, you know, these are. The advertising slots, I understand, are expensive, right? In other words, like to get your message out in the Super Bowl, you're going to get a lot of eyeballs. And so I'm watching this thing last night. And what struck me was two companies that spent obviously millions and millions of dollars for short ads do you know who i'm so talking just about just to interrupt for one second so i think i read somewhere that a 30 second ad this year was like 6.7 million dollars i suspect that that's what it would be 
or, or perhaps more, yeah. but astonishingly, okay, here, I wonder if you can guess two companies that paid the entrance fee to advertise on a Super Bowl. It's in our block. You got, that's one. <laughs> um, and the second? Liberty Tax Service. It was, uh, I, well, it was whoever makes TurboTax. Is that, is that? Oh, into it, into it, yeah. Do it, yeah. I mean, I think, I find that absolutely extraordinary. You know, when you think about that, so this is aimed mostly, overwhelmingly, at people in the United States whose tax returns would be, you know, at least compared to Americans abroad, pretty simple stuff. Agreed? Agreed. And one thing that I will, I will add is, on a personal level, I have never seen a tax return prepared by H&R Block that did not have a mistake on it. And I think I, I read a paper somewhere online. I might get the percentage wrong, but th that it was something like 75%. Like somebody went and checked the accuracy of the, of the returns. Something like 75% of the returns prepared by H&R Block contain errors. Now, whether that's their fault or the fault of the taxpayer for not providing correct information, who knows, but um, that's a staggering number, uh, especially given that most of the returns that H&R Block prepares are not ungodly complex. Well, I think that's right. It, my, it seems to me that people with more complex situations sort of reflexively avoid the H&R Blocks of the world, uh, you know, for a very simple reason that that they use tax, generally they use tax preparers, meaning somebody who they've trained to, you know, do a tax yeah. return. That doesn't strike me as somebody who has an awful lot of judgment or understanding uh, with any of this stuff. But, you know, think of it. H&R Block, thinking that it was in their interest to spend whatever the seven million bucks is, okay, you know, for a 30 second ad, I mean, I think that is absolutely extraordinary. Well, I mean, I mean, one thing that's even more extraordinary than that is, you know, they went, I mean, because, you know, they grew as a franchise. And I don't know what percentage of their stores are still franchises, but I remember 10, 15 years ago, they were on a buying spree, buying it all back and making them all corporate stores. So, I mean, the amount of money that H&R Block makes is, is staggering is is that a public company i don't know i mean if that's the case i mean why why not uh, why, why not invest buy buy shares in h&r block but you know somebody should set up a mutual fund of all the tax repair companies hold on let's see h h&r h&r block is a public company it appears, and it is it is down. Uh, Sorry, the symbol's down. The 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 symbol is HRB. Okay, and it is going, and and right now it looks like it's at twenty four fifty five. Where's it been in the last year? 
Well, let's see. One year. So it's pretty close. So it's one year. The highest it's ever been in the last year was 26. Does it pay a dividend? The dividend yield 4.4%. Good God. It's pretty I mean, high. That, that, that is pretty high. <laughs> wow. I, I, you know, I mean, that is unbelievable. Plus, I mean, the very fact that they're advertising, you know, the Super Bowl tells you that they're basically making off like bandits. But Oh, for sure. You know, so you know, you got uh, Intuit or however you—I don't—I never know how to pronounce it, but you know what I mean. The TurboTax people. Mm -hmm. Is Liberty Tax another one of these? Or I've seen them around. Liberty Tax was was a big one, like H and R Block. I mean, I, I you know, I don't—I haven't lived in the U.S. in quite a while, so I, I don't know if they're still around or what they're doing. I know they got in some trouble for some sleazy business practices, but. Um, you mean like filing tax returns? I don't remember what it was. I don't. I don't. I, I don't remember. I don't. It might have been with. No, I don't think. I think it was somehow in regard to fees or payday loans or, or uh, you know refund uh, loans or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But uh, I mean, there are. I see them in Canada. I, I yeah. See them here. And of course, uh, you know, the H&R Blocks in Canada, there's an elite group of H&R Blocks in Canada, you know, who do U.S. tax returns. Ooh. I mean, they can't be done by just everybody, but there is a group. And they have, you know, they have fancier offices and, you know. I mean, I, I, I remember. They serve you lattes instead of McDonald's coffee when you go in. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I remember, you know, we, I was one of the, the early you know, Esquire was one of the early companies into, you know, expat tax preparation. I mean, we were doing it before it was cool. And um, I remember when H&R Block started opening up global offices to do expat tax. I was like, that's, that's it. <laughs> like, that's, that's, uh, that's a catastrophe waiting to happen because you can, you know, be damn near certain that those returns are not of the highest quality. Oh, I, I, they're, they're, they're terrible. They're, they're but, absolutely terrible because, you know, to get into the, the types of returns that are required for most Americans abroad actually require judgment. You know, yeah. I think I mean, you, know, you have to actually look at the facts and try to figure out what's needed. It's not like well, just, you know, I mean, here's this is definitely a 1099, you know. Well, I mean, look, and I mean, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm not just going to say judgment. But I'm going to say, I mean, look, you, you, you went to, to law school where they trained you how to, you know, analyze code and case law and all this stuff to try to form some sort of an argument or an opinion about a, a certain uh, subject. And I just don't know how anybody can prepare an international tax return without having that skill set. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to law school to have that skill set, but it's the rare person that is, is, is capable of doing that without having, you know, gone through that type of education. And, 
Because you can't rely on the instructions, right? I mean, you have to, I mean, if you're doing a 5471 and you have, you know, need to look into subpart F or guilty or even filing categories, I mean, you got to dive into the, the, the code and the regs and um, all that kind of stuff to try to figure out what the hell is going on. Well, the, the truth of the matter is that, uh, I mean, this is my view, and I'd be interested whether you agree or not, but for any American abroad with a small business, I don't think, it, I don't think that it is possible to get a return done properly at the price level that H&R Block is generally charging. Not a chance. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about this. So, okay, so to have an effective tax code, we need consent. We need it to be, you need to be able to comply with it relatively yep. easily. What else? Well, I think you need, I think you need a tax system where, where basically everybody contributes. I completely agree. And uh, I mean, clearly in North America, uh, we don't have that. Uh, I mean, tax systems have now become, you know, we've talked about this sort of instruments of social policy and engineering. Um, much more, I think, about the redistribution of wealth and about funding government services. And, uh, you know, I mean, sales taxes are better for that kind of thing. They're also easier to comply with. Well, look, you know, my, my thought is the tax has to be reasonable enough and easy enough to comply that trying to avoid it isn't worth it. Right, that it's just not worth the headache. Like if the United States just said to me, you know, listen, you just pay, you know what, they could even say pay 10% of revenue and you don't have to file a return. There's no deductions, there's no nothing. I, I think I'd pay it. A revenue tax would be far, far better than an income tax because, you know, as long as it's low enough, as long as it's low enough, I mean, even here in small business, you can't afford the revenue tax. You probably shouldn't be in the business at all. Well, right. And I mean, look, it just means that you need to price your services such that you can afford the revenue tax, right? Well, is that, I mean, question, is, is that not the same thing conceptually as some kind of a sales tax or a VAT tax? Certainly, Yes. So, I mean, what it does is it gets, you know, just how much you gross, you know, send some of it over, you know, et cetera. And it gets people out of the whole problem of, you know, what's an expense and a this and a that. I can imagine, I mean, you know, 90% or maybe not 90%, but certainly three quarters of the internal revenue code would be obsolete, wouldn't it? Yep. I mean, look, I mean, I think, I think a revenue tax is sort of, it's like a VAT, it's just the opposite, right? The, the VAT is added on top of the price of a service, whereas a revenue tax would be deducted from it, right? So, I mean, essentially, you know, I remember when I, lived, when I lived in Vegas, they used to have these things at the strip club called stripper chips. And so you'd go, you know, you'd go buy these things. And if you wanted like a hundred bucks in stripper chips, you'd have to pay 110 to get them, right? So you had to pay 10% more to get it. And then when the dancers went to go trade them in, 
they'd only get 90 bucks worth, right? So the house, they got got 10 going in and 10 taking the, the girl out. And I mean, essentially you could have a VAT and a, a, a revenue tax. So you get both parties paying, but it's easy to comply with, right? It's, it's easy to comply with. It's, it's not a, an absolutely ridiculous amount of, of, of money. Um, I think people would just comply with it because it's easy. It's not worth the headache of trying to figure out how to not pay it. Well, I think that's right, and I think it's clear. So what we what we're describing here is the the buyer, of course, pays the BAT equivalent, and the recipient, you know, the seller pays, you know, another ten percent. I mean, that might I think that might work much much better. I mean, at least at least it's simple for God's sake. I mean. You know, you look at the stuff that's going on now and you can't even understand what it is. Yep. Well, what do you think the H&R blocks of the world would think about that? Well, I mean, look, I think that there is a big lobby for H&R block. And, you know, that probably the, 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 the CPAs, I would, I would imagine the big four. Um, I imagine there's a huge lobby to keep it complicated. I'm sure there absolutely is. I mean, when it's reached the point where nobody can even understand what they're being required to do, it's it's clearly gone way too far. Okay, so ability to comply with it, I think that's that's extremely important. You know, you know what's interesting? So I was I was on a conference call this morning and I was talking to a guy in, in the UK, and it's something that I've never really thought through before. But he was talking about estimated tax payments, right? And so he was saying to him, he was, he was basically saying like, you know, America has the same system. I imagine Canada might as well, but the UK has, you know, the system where, you know, if, if you have to pay your estimated taxes for the next year, right? So that, you know, when you file your taxes, you don't owe. And he was like, this is just so ridiculous. He goes, I'm paying taxes based on money I haven't received yet that I might not even get because my compensation is tied to some performance milestones, which may or may not hit because of market conditions. And he goes, this is just the most ridiculous thing. And I never thought about it that way, but it really is, right? You're paying tax on hypothetical income that you haven't received yet. and You don't even know if you're going to get well, how's that different from what I call the fake income, the subpart F regime, or the uh, throwback rules and all this other stuff? I mean, you know, we've got a real trend towards fake income. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Or, or why don't we call it anticipatory I mean, income? Anticipatory. I mean, I mean what, and, and this just made me get, brought another thought to mind, which is we've gotten to a point where tax, they've run out of the ability to tax real income. So that they've had to start fake, taxing fake income, right? Like they're making up, they're making up shit to tax because they've already taxed all the real stuff. There's nothing left, so they have to create more. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, it's just, it, you know, I think in the United States, they probably regard it as, as an aspect of manifest destiny. You know, you start with the 13 colonies, move westward, and I think that probably it's the same principle. You start with actual income, and then when you run out, you expand to fake income. 
I mean, and you know what? If you think about this, if you think about a company with, let's say, a million dollars in revenue, right, in a services business, you potentially, between a 10% VAT and a 10% revenue tax, they would collect 200 grand on every million. I bet you they collect less than that now with this ridiculous system that they have. Certainly they do. Certainly they do. Absolutely. I mean, part of the reason is that the, that the current system, you know, it, it creates opportunities to avoid the stuff. Yeah. But if you have simplicity, there's really no opportunity to avoid it. And, like, and then people, you're right, people wouldn't even think about it, right? It would just become a fact of life. Yeah. The problem with the, with the current tax system is that it's far more than a fact of life, okay? It's a fact of opportunity. It's a fact of unfairness. You know, it's, and, you know, it, and then there's all these other compliance tolls along the way. It's, I mean, it's well, madness. Well, and I mean, that's the other thing with a reasonable, with a, you know, here's another point for a reasonable tax system, right? That you're not constantly living in fear of audit of doing something wrong, right? I mean, if you have a revenue VAT system, there's no reason to, to audit. I mean, there's one number to verify in an audit. What's the revenue? That's it, period, right? I mean, you know, you can sleep at night because you were able to comply. I mean, it just makes so much more sense. And, and would provide people, their citizens, with such a greater quality of life and create so much more happiness and well-being. Well, and, and the opportunity to unleash their creative abilities to do something productive. Absolutely. You know, I had a, I had dinner a couple of years ago with a CPA who is, you know, one of the best I know. I mean, this guy's, you know, incredible. He's in his late sixties. He's got, you know, at least a 40 year career. And that, and he said something very interesting to me. He was talking about his career and he's talking about all the people he known. And he said, you know, I was once thinking, Imagine all these bright people, what they could have done in their lot with their lives if they'd done something other than being a CPA. <laughs> it's true. And you know, and you know, and the, the thing is, I mean, I'm not saying they're not out there, but you know, most of these guys, after a few years of doing it, are pretty miserable. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a hard business, right? Like you're 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 constantly under stress of deadlines. Like you, you, it's it's a really difficult business to try to market because it's something people don't want to pay for to begin with, right? So they don't see the the they don't see the you know it's not like they're getting something they want for that money, right? So it's you know your clients are always pissed, they're always you know bitching about the bill. Nobody's happy to hear from their CPA or see their CPA, right? I mean it's it's it's, it's a tough job. I think it's probably, unless the C, well, I think maybe the ones who have some other value added service like advice that goes, yeah, for sure. the yeah that's different, but just the, the you know, the whole, and you know, and they charge like, you know, for example, in Toronto, my impression is that to get a basic 5471 done reliably, okay, defensively by somebody who knows how to do it, it's probably about 5,000 bucks. I would say that's about right. Yeah. And, 
you know, that's not a complicated one. Okay. That's just one, you know, it's the entrance fee to have it done by somebody who actually understands what it's about, how to fill out the form and, and how the information relates to taxation. Right. Yep. And that is, you know, so they call it a form 5471. So people imagine it's a form, you tick off some boxes, right? I mean, the whole thing is misdescribed, but it's a, it's a horrible. And, you know, not only is it horrible for the clients, but in general, I think that the tax repairs feel they're underpaid to even do it at $5,000. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, look, a 5471 is really complicated. And especially since guilty, I feel like every year you look at a 5471, there's some new pages. It's just getting more and more complex because, you know, you need to, you know, before it was kind of left up to the, the you know, the taxpayer, the tax professional to sort of internally track all these tax credits and everything else. Now they all got to go into the form, right? I mean, you just have to report all these numbers that you base your calculations on. And now I recently read that they've, st that they've started doing the same things for, for partnerships on the K-1s, that there's some, some really complex new foreign reporting that's required that's driving the tax preparer's map. Well, another part of the conversation with the same person a few weeks ago, I ran into him briefly and we were talking about the 2017 stuff, right? And I said yeah. to him, you know, I bet you that that was the end of about 70% of U.S. tax preparers in Canada because of the complexity of it. And, and he agreed with me, right? Yeah. In other words, when it reaches the point where not even the tax preparers can manage it, I mean, you've got a serious, serious problem. Yeah, that's for sure. So there's definitely a lot of value in, in simplicity. I mean, I, it's funny. When I compare the U.S. and Canada, both, I mean, they're both horrible in different ways. But Canada has a much simpler system and higher tax rates, right? So the question is, are you better off with a simpler system and higher rates or an insanely complex system and lower rates? And I'm not, I think the answer is probably circumstantial, but I can well admit, but I, I see in my own sort of circle of people whose circumstances I know, people who are not making a lot of money, but are absolutely crippled by these compliance costs. Well, I mean, look, I mean, you guys have the added benefit that you don't have citizenship-based taxation, but you know, your equivalent of subpart F with these you know, controlled foreign affiliate rules uh, is, is also pretty complex. It is, but it doesn't affect the person on the street, you know, to the same degree yeah. subpart F regime. But, you know, that, that I guess that's partly a byproduct of the citizenship taxation. But there's no question that, uh, that, that Canada has CFC rules. And, and actually, CFC rules are generally the rage throughout the world. I mean, more and more countries yeah. are getting these things. Yeah, yeah. It's very true. And, uh, you know, on that note, I was... Uh, you know, one of these investment migration conferences a few years ago, and somebody was, you know, trying to promote their program. 
And it was all pretty, you know, pedestrian, repetitive stuff until this person made a comment that I thought, now that's interesting. He said, oh, and by the way, we have no CFC rules. It's a big selling point if you've ever been caught up in CFC rules. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, well, it's, it's really another way of saying that we have a form of freedom in our country that many other countries don't. For sure. So we go back here, destroy the social order if you must. Well, um, you know, I mean, taxes do destroy the social order. There's no question about that, but never destroy a tax system that works well. Now, you know, part of the problem we have is that we have not lived in a world with a tax system that works particularly well, but I'm wondering if you can think of, I mean, are you aware of any of anything that's worked well, it's sort of been destroyed? You know, the only thing, I, I, so I don't know of any tax system that I've witnessed in my lifetime that works well and that has been destroyed. And the only tax system that I think works pretty well uh, is the Swiss tax system. And I think that one of the reasons for that is it's taxation by consent, right? I mean, any the, the entire, because it's a direct democracy, the entire country needs to vote on any budgetary increases and also any increase in taxes, right? So the, the purse strings and the, the, the revenue are, are controlled by, by the citizens. And so I think, you know, I've never heard, I've never, from anybody that I've known that's ever lived in Switzerland or that is Swiss, I've never heard them say uh, a, a bad word about the Swiss tax system. They, they all think it's fair and you get good value for your money. Well, so it's kind of like a bunch of guys, you know, they sit around the table and say, well, you know, we got to pay for this and how are we going to get the contribution? They kind of work it out. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose there's a sense there that tax revenues are being raised for a specific purpose, that it's a justifiable purpose, a reasonable purpose. Yeah. And although there may not be equal contribution, at least there's agreement, you know, on the broad goal. Now, if we compare that to the United States or Canada, Oh, my God. I mean, you know, as far as I can see, tax revenue is raised just for the sake of raising revenue. Well, I mean, that's absolutely right. Well, I mean, in the United States, for example, you know, apparently, you know, they want to raise it to pay down the deficit. But the problem is, you know, as soon as they get any money, they do something, do anything but pay down the deficit. Yeah, well, that's right. You know, they, they will print it. I mean, they will, they will do anything. Yeah. Well, I do not believe that the tax systems in Canada and the United States can be fixed. I think that they need to be broken. Start all over your fees up to 15 million this week, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they should be contracting with you with a $15 million retainer to redesign their tax systems. And well, this podcast can be the start. Well, well, look, I think that they need to retain us both. I think that uh, I'll split the fee with you. I think that we'll do a tremendous job together. Uh, maybe they'll listen to our podcast and take some notes and be like, these are the two geniuses <laughs> that are going to well, say 
it can be the Charles Adams Tax Act. The Charles Adams yeah. Tax there Act. There you go. We'll name it in his, in his honor. Long run, I don't see any way. I mean, would you agree that the tax systems in Canada, the United States, probably, you know, probably all these first world democracies have reached the point where not only are they disrespected, but it's nothing but a feeling of contempt for them? A hundred percent. Well, that's not sustainable, is it? Nope. Uh -uh. It's going to break it. There's going to be there's going to be a breaking point at some point. What would cause it? Well, you know, let me tell you something interesting. So I was speaking to like I said, I was speaking with a gentleman today uh, who's in the, the UK. And we were talking about the success of Dubai. And he was telling me how his accountant, who's nothing special, right? Like he's just kind of a regular old normal account, not particularly aggressive, you know, not somebody who's, you know, normally dealing with super high net worth individuals and doing, you know, really advanced stuff. Basically has told my friend twice now, like you need to leave <laughs> because, you know, your only tax plan is to leave. The UK, like that's the only thing you can do at this point to avoid paying this much tax. And here's the interesting thing that he told me. He told me that he's aware of some companies in the, because of all this remote work that's now happened, where he's aware of some, some companies in the UK, some of them pretty large with hundreds of employees. And these are, you know, professional services, you know, businesses that you can do a lot remotely that are actually sat down and said, look, the cost of our offices in London, the cost of all the social insurance and everything else, the pension and all the stuff that we have to pay into the system, plus what our employees have to pay. They've gone out with an offer and said, listen, you can make your same money and we'll pay for your relocation wherever you want to go. Provided it's, you know, to one of these sort of tax advantaged places because the company's going to save, you know, all of this sort of social spending, all the, you know, the, the employee's going to save the taxes. And I mean, just imagine that you have entire companies that are now offering this as a benefit to their employees saying, hey, you want to leave? We'll pay for it. I yeah, mean, this is, I mean, this is not one or two people saying we're going to move. I mean, this is facilitation by companies at a, at a grand scale. Um, this, I mean, this is it's going to become not sustainable really quick. Well, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, certainly that at least I would consider the transition to sort of the digital world is now pretty much complete. Yep. And uh, that's going to make it very, very difficult for uh, for countries to hold their taxpayers captive. I mean, unless they literally put up walls, which yep. I, you know, I would not put past them, at least initially. Not at all. All right. Well, this has been interesting. And I think part of the message is buy H&R Block stock <laughs> and ride it until there's tax reform. Uh, any closing thoughts for this week? Uh, I think this was a really interesting topic. I see that we have a topic. My closing remark is going to be this. I'm really excited for getting to lesson 18, um, where we talk about 
Great wealth, as if by magic, disappears when governments adopt taxation to soak the rich. The rich have always had the means to escape heavy taxation. This is this this is this is like my 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 business model. And this this is a topic that's rather dear to your heart, isn't it? <laughs> Near and dear to my heart. All right, that's great. All right, well, thanks very much, and have a great week. And uh, I always enjoy starting my week off with these Mondays with Jimmy. And until next week. Thank you. See you later. See you.